Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today we want to do an episode that goes through the liver, the anatomy of the liver, how blood flow is carried out from the arterial side, how it goes through the liver to get filtered, and then how it's brought back to the heart from the venous side, and then what things can manipulate that blood flow. We also want to talk about some diseases of the liver, such as viral hepatitis, drugs that cause hepatitis, cirrhosis, and what are the anesthesia complications and alterations we're going to have to do because of these disease processes. So Tanner, you want to just get us started here with an overview of the anatomy of the liver? So first things first, where is the liver located? I think we all know this, but just for review, it's located in the upper right abdominal cavity under your lower ribs. As far as your cardiac output and blood volume and things like that, it receives approximately 25% of your cardiac output, pretty significant. And it also acts as a reservoir for your blood. So uh, it can hold up to about a liter of blood. And then if there's an episode of hypovolemia, uh, or severe hypotension related to this hypovolemia, it actually can distribute that blood. As far as the actual makeup of a liver, the lobule is the functional unit of the liver and it's shaped kind of like a hexagon. It has six sides. And then at the very center is going to be your central vein. And we'll talk about this and why that's important here in a second uh, in terms of the different zones and, and blood flow and things like that. Branches of the arterial blood flow coming to the liver will flow between these lobules and then will go to the capillary mesh called sinusoids until it gets to the center part. And that's where the central vein is. So when you think about the overall blood flow, you're going to have arterial blood, and then that's going to be moving in between these lobules. And then that will go through the lobule. There's that capillary mesh there. That's the sinusoids. And then as it moves still central, that's where you finally get to the central vein. So keep that in mind. That'll be helpful as we move forward. There's three zones that we want to talk about. You'll hear this often. I think this is like a very common test question that we've seen as far as the different oxygenation of the different zones. So this is something that we just want to review here quickly. So zone one is going to be the most oxygenated. And then three zone three is going to be the most at risk for hypoxia. It should make sense to you that zone one is going to be on the outer part of the lobule where the arterial blood flow is. And then zone two is in the outer edge of the lobules. Zone three is going to be there in the center right next to that central vein. So it just makes sense. Zone one is going to be there with the arterial blood flow. As it moves closer to the center, that's where you get to zone three. Zone three there next to the vein, that's the part or the cells that were most at risk for hypoxia. So keep in mind here, when we say arterial blood flow, this is actually a mixture of blood coming both from the hepatic artery, which is going to be arterial, and as well as the portal vein. And the portal vein is bringing all the blood that has already been through your digestive tract. So this is blood coming from the gut, from the spleen, from the stomach, all this kind of area where it can absorb things across from the digestive tract, it is now bringing blood back. And this is all compiling together at this portal vein. And this portal vein now will merge together with the hepatic artery. And it's important to understand the difference here in terms of which one is providing the most oxygen, which one is providing the most blood flow, et cetera. So the hepatic artery, that's going to just shoot right off from the aorta. 
and it's going to be delivering about 25% of the blood flow to the liver, whereas the portal vein, like I said, is this collection of blood that's coming from the digestive tract, and it contains all this other stuff that's been absorbed from the digestive tract, and the oxygenation has already been used up for most of those cells. And so while it provides the other 75% of blood flow to the liver, it's only going to contain about 50% of the total oxygen being brought to the liver, and the other 50% of the oxygenation is going to come from that hepatic artery, which is only bringing 25% of the blood flow. So keep that in mind here. Most of the actual volume of blood is coming from this portal vein, but they both provide the equal amount of oxygenation between the hepatic artery and the portal vein. So like most organs, the liver is going to try to regulate how much blood flow it gets based on several factors. The hepatic artery is going to contain alpha-1, alpha-2, and beta-2 receptors, whereas the portal vein only contains alpha. This is important to keep in mind here because only the hepatic artery is going to be able to vasodilate due to that beta 2, whereas both of them are going to be able to constrict with the alpha 1. So keep that in mind. The hepatic artery is going to, again, like I said, be able to dilate or constrict whether it has the alpha or the beta receptors being stimulated here. And it's going to change the amount of blood flow that's being brought from the hepatic artery. And it usually does this to compensate for a change in portal blood flow. So for example, if your portal vein is going to have an increase in flow, the hepatic artery then will constrict in order to limit the amount of blood flow coming from the arterial side. And this maintains an overall blood flow to the liver. Another regulating part is the idea of having adenosine being present to cause vasodilation. So adenosine is a big vasodilator. And the theory behind this here is that if blood flow is going to decrease going to the liver, then any adenosine that's going to be in that blood flow is not going to be swept away with the current of the blood moving through. And more of that adenosine is going to be staying next to the lining of these walls through the liver. And it's going to cause vasodilation, which will then compensate for the original vasoconstriction and it'll increase blood flow through the liver. So again, this is just the idea that adenosine causes vasodilation. So if this blood flow is slower, then more of that adenosine is going to build up in the liver and then cause vasodilation, which will increase that blood flow through. Another thing is nitric oxide. We also know nitric oxide is a potent vasodilator as well. So when this is present, it's going to cause the hepatic artery to dilate. And then that'll again, obviously increase your blood flow coming into the liver. Let's talk about things that we do in anesthesia that will affect the blood flow. So overall, you'll see a reduction in blood flow to the liver when we do a pneumoperitoneum. That's one thing when you're increasing the abdominal pressure, then you'll see an overall decrease in the amount of blood flow to the liver. Another thing that would cause it, and this should make sense since we just talked about cardiac output and that giving 25% of its total output to the liver. So if we give anything that would reduce cardiac output, then that would also make sense that we'd reduce the amount of blood flow that goes to the liver. The other thing that maybe you didn't think of that also decreases the amount of blood flow to the liver is if we increase our CVP. So you need to think about your perfusion pressure. We talk about perfusion pressure with all our organs, but with the liver here, what we're thinking about is if you have a high CVP, that's going to cause back pressure on the liver, and that will limit the amount of blood that actually is going to flow through it just because of that back pressure. Propanolol is a drug that will severely reduce liver blood flow because it both increases the splenic vasculature resistance, and it also decreases your cardiac output. So it's basically doubling down on the factors that would decrease the blood flow there to the liver. So just remember that propanolol is going to be something that will severely decrease your blood flow.
In terms of liver function, now that we have a little bit of the blood flow and kind of the physiology of it, let's talk about the function. So it metabolizes carbs and lipids. Uh, It's known for glucogenesis, glycogenesis, and glycogenolysis. So these three things basically will regulate your glucose converting to glycogen and then uh, reconverting back to glucose when your body needs it. So it's very important there in terms of energy stores and how our body is going to use glucose. It's also going to be important for cholesterol synthesis and lipogenesis creates albumin. That's going to be something that's very important when we consider liver function and in terms of our bioavailability of our different drugs. It's also going to be very important for coagulation factors. So remember that factors 1, 2, 5, 7, 9, 10, 11 are all there in the liver. And so it's going to be very, very important when we're talking about the coagulation. It'll also be important for creating bile, angiotensinogen, uh, complement proteins, et cetera. There's just a lot of things that our liver is going to be creating. Also, we'll break down bilirubin. This is something that we typically see uh, in newborns. Maybe this is something where it's not working appropriately. And so they're having an excess amount of bilirubin. It breaks down ammonia uh, and many, many of our drugs are broken down and metabolized here in the liver. It's also going to have an important function as far as storing things. So it stores glucose, uh, vitamin B12, vitamin D, vitamin K, iron, copper, all stored here in the liver. So you can see it's a very multifunctional organ as far as things that it creates, things that it breaks down, things that it stores, does all these things here in the liver. So one of the things that we think the most of with the liver in terms of anesthesia world is the breakdown of our drugs. And there's a couple of different reactions that occur to break these drugs down. We split this up into phase one reactions and phase two reactions. Phase one reactions, the purpose here is to add or expose a functional group that's going to then prepare it for a phase two reaction. And so the three things that we commonly refer to as phase one reactions are going to be oxidation, reduction, and hydrolysis. So oxidation and reduction are going to involve adding or subtracting different electrons to change the overall charge of this molecule. And hydrolysis is where you add a water molecule and kind of split this a little bit and just reshape the molecule to prep it now for this phase two reaction, which is going to be a conjugation reaction. And the purpose of a conjugation reaction is where you take the product that we have after phase one and you conjugate it by adding a second molecule onto the end of that product. The goal here really is to make these molecules either A, not pharmacologically active anymore, and then B, allow it to be more hydrophilic, which is going to be allowing it to be excreted from the body. So next, you want to talk about the bile system. So bile is going to be produced from hepatocytes, and it's going to drain it to a bile duct. And lots of these bile ducts from across the liver are going to converge now into what's called our common hepatic duct. So imagine this duct is going to be running out from the liver and it's going to go all the way down until it eventually gets to the duodenum. So the duodenum is the part of the small intestine right after the stomach. It's the first part of the small intestine. So right after our food leaves the stomach and into the duodenum, it's going to come to this point here where this duct running from the liver is going to meet up with that duodenum. The goal here then is to have this bile being released into the duodenum, which is going to help us break down fats and absorb it. And it's just really important here with the breakdown of our fatty foods that we eat. So the end of the duct of the duodenum is going to be known as the ampule of otter. So at this ampule of otter, you're going to have a sphincter known as the sphincter of Odie. 
And this is going to be a collection of smooth muscle that's going to wrap around the end of this duct. And when it squeezes, it's going to prevent any of that bile from being released into the duodenum. However, when it's relaxed, that's when you're going to be able to have this bile freely flow out into the duodenum. So this sphincter is going to be stimulated based on the fact of if we're having a meal or not. So after a meal, when you've had all that fatty food coming down through, it's going to cause the sphincter to relax and allow bile and other pancreatic enzymes to flow past into the intestine. However, during a fasting state, the sphincter is going to be constricted, which causes all that bile to get backed up through the duct. So imagine now we're on this long period of fasting and the sphincter of Odi is, is really squeezing down and you're having bile that's still being made from the hepatocytes and it's dripping down to this duct and it's flowing all the way down to the duodenum, but it's not being able to be let out. And so it's going to start filling up and backing up through this duct, but it does not back up all the way to the liver. Instead, there's an overflow duct that occurs when the bile backs up. And this duct leads now to a different organ that we call the gallbladder. The gallbladder is going to store excess bile until our body is going to need it. And it basically acts as a reservoir for all this bile. So the duct, that's this offshoot running between the gallbladder and then the common hepatic duct is known as the cystic duct. So coming out of your liver, if you can bear with me now, you have your common hepatic duct and then coming from the gallbladder, you have your cystic duct and where they converge and they're a common duct leading down to the duodenum, that's called your common bile duct. And the common bile duct leads from this convergence of the common hepatic duct and your cystic duct now all the way down to the duodenum. Right at the base where this duct is going to converge to the duodenum, it also converges with the pancreatic duct. And this pancreatic duct is going to be coming obviously off the pancreas, and it's going to contain any type of fluid and enzymes that are going to be released from the pancreas needed for digestion as well. So this is something that you'll probably see a lot, especially as a new SRNA, you'll do probably a lot of lap coles. This is a pretty common procedure that we do in the operating room. Usually this is because of an obstruction that is preventing the drainage of bile through the cystic duct from the gallbladder there to the common bile duct. So often this is caused by a gallstone, which leads to biliary colic or acute cholecystitis. You can see fever leukocytosis, right upper quadrant pain or tenderness is a really hallmark sign. Typically we'll just take out the gallbladder to treat this. You can also do an ERCP to confirm the presence of stones there and uh, even remove them if possible. Something to keep in mind. Do you remember you talked about the sphincter of OD just a second ago, Cole, do you remember what drug you give, especially with ERCPs to uh, relax that sphincter? Yes, yeah, it's actually a question I was asked in my first ERCP, and I'll never forget it. It's glucagon. Yep. So glucagon is going to cause that sphincter to relax. And so often the procedurists will ask you to give glucagon there during that procedure just so they can perform that ERCP. You should remember also that opioids cause a spasm of the sphincter body. So again, you can treat that with glucagon. You can give Narcan to reverse the effects of the opioids or you can simply just give some nitroglycerin that would work as well. Next thing we're going to talk about is some of the complications that we can see specifically with the liver. So the first thing that you probably think of is cirrhosis. So this is the development of these nodules surrounded by fibrous bands inside the liver. So typically this is the result of chronic liver injury. Usually we think of alcohol abuse. You can also see this with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in obese patients. Uh, if they have chronic hepatitis, or biliary obstruction. These are all things that can lead to liver cirrhosis. 
the problem with this is when you think about this fibrous tissue, it's preventing blood from flowing through the lobules of the liver. So if you remember all the way at the beginning of this discussion, we talked about the way that the blood flows through the liver. So it starts there in the arteries, then it'll go through the splenic vasculature until you're getting to that central hepatic vein. And then you talked about the different zones there, zone one, two, and three, where you'll have issues with hypoxia. This is the problem. If we have a really, really uh, fibrotic liver, then that blood isn't able to push through those different zones. And so blood can become backed up into the portal vein and cause more congestion. This results in portal hypertension. This will result in an enlarged spleen and engorged esophageal vessels. You see these called varices. Basically, it's like a aneurysm of these uh, vessels there. Uh, you'll see ascites. So this is where you have edema in the abdominal region. And that's all from this backup of blood as it's not able to move through the liver. Something that will compound the problem of ascites is because not only are you having this backup of blood, the other problem is that you have less albumin being made because of a poor functioning liver. So this is going to result in less oncotic pressure. So you have less pole that's holding the fluid in the vessel. And that's where you get that fluid in their abdomen. If you worked in the ICU or medical ICU, you probably saw this frequently where somebody would have to come in and possibly be drained just because of the large ascites that were developing. And then that was causing other issues either with cardiac output or um, simply just getting too large and needed to be uh, drained. And so this is all from the liver not functioning appropriately. In order to limit the blood that is going to be backed up through the splenic circulation, the body is going to try to compensate for this. So it will create collateral vessels to completely bypass the liver. And so that's known as the portosystemic shunt. What we can also do is a procedure called a TIPS procedure. This stands for transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. This is basically going to create a bypass from the portal vein to the hepatic veins, which carries blood from the liver to the inferior vena cava. So by doing this, we can basically bypass the damaged liver. It's important to keep in mind with these cirrhosis patients that they're going to have what's called a hyperdynamic circulation. And the idea of a hyperdynamic circulation is where you have a low SVR due to a vasodilator release, but you're going to have a high cardiac output. Typically, if you remember, I spoke earlier about the idea of adenosine being a potent vasodilator. So both adenosine and nitric oxide are going to be some of the main vasodilators that are going to cause this SVR to be systemically low, but you're also going to have a high cardiac output because your SNS and your RAS system is going to be constantly stimulated. And that RAS system is going to end up causing a lot of aldosterone to be released, which is going to retain sodium, retain water. You're going to have a hyper volumetric state here we're going to have a lot of volume flowing through these vessels, but they are very dilated. And this is what's known as a hyperdynamic circulation. So a red flag should be going off in your head as well. If you remember from our endocrine talk, if you are constantly having aldosterone being released, like I said, you're going to be retaining that sodium, retaining that extra fluid. And it's not really going to change your sodium level because you're equally bringing that back with the fluid. But what you are going to see is a reduction in the amount of potassium you have because the kidneys will excrete the potassium while it retains that sodium and water. So these patients are going to be at risk here for having low potassium levels. So based on this hyperdynamic state that the patient's going to be in, they are going to be very at risk of developing cardiomyopathy. So depending on how far along they are in this disease process, keep that in mind that you should be looking at an echocardiogram of these patients before you take care of them. As Tanner mentioned earlier, the liver is going to help clear ammonia, but this can accumulate 
with cirrhosis if we're not going to be able to clear it and take it down and out of the body. So what can happen here is this ammonia is going to start to build up and it can cause an increase in intracranial pressure and cause some altermentation, even some coma-like states. Uh, typically, I remember when I worked in the ICU, we would get a lot of these patients that um, were either acutely ill uh, with with uh, liver diseases, or they were just having some chronic liver diseases as well. And they would have this buildup in ammonia and we would treat them with lactulose. And that's typically the number one treatment that you do to lower this amount of ammonia is to give lactulose. Unfortunately, if you remember what the uh, side effect of this is, it's going to cause the patient to have lots and lots of bowel movements. So this is not the most fun to take care of. Lactulose is always like classic. They would, you'd get report and it'd be like, Hey, um, they just put this order in at 645 for lactulose. I haven't been able to give any, or they were like, I just gave the first dose yes. at like 615 and it was ordered for like 3 PM or something. And you were like, great. That, this oh, I good. always hated that. <laughs> well, cause you had at least where I worked, you had a two hour window to give the medication. So the medication was due at six o'clock. You had between 501 and 659 to give yeah. it quote on time. And we would always do shift change at seven. So they would always wait till like 655 to give it. And they're giving me a report and be like, oh, yeah, they just got their first dose. They haven't had a bowel movement yeah. yet, but it should be happening anytime. And you're, you're going to do but your But then assessment. sometimes it wouldn't happen in your shift. Even though it started there, it would be like you'd go your whole shift and it just hadn't started moving yet. And you're like, this is about to be bad for whatever. The, whenever this breaks, this is going to be bad. It's building up. I hope it's not on my shift. Well, that's the beauty of anesthesia. I was just going to say, that's the beauty of of anesthesia is you don't have to worry about that anymore. So the last part with cirrhosis I want to talk about um, is there's two different issues we're going to see, and that's with the lungs and with the kidneys. So with the lungs, we're going to have hepatopulmonary syndrome, and this is the development of arterial hypoxemia due to a dilation in the pulmonary arteries, aka if we have these arteries and capillaries that are dilated in the pulmonary circuit. And again, this is due to the hyperdynamic circulation where everything's dilated out then imagine you have the hemoglobin molecules that are flowing through these capillaries. Well, they need to be brushing up against the walls of the capillaries in order to have exchange of gas between themselves and whatever is in the lungs on the other side of those thin membranes. If they don't brush up against that wall, then they're not going to be able to exchange that gas. And so in my mind, if we dilate these vessels, you're going to have some hemoglobin molecules that are flowing along the walls, but you're also going to have some flowing in the center which never come in contact with the walls. And so they never have gas exchange. And this is going to then result in a hypoxemia picture because less oxygen is getting moved into the bloodstream. So again, in order to classify these patients with the pulmonary syndrome, they are going to have to have hypoxemia with this dilated pulmonary vasculature, but they're also going to have to be diagnosed with portal hypertension. And typically their pulmonary arterial pressure is going to be above 25 millimeters of mercury. While we're talking about the lungs, typically you're going to see a restrictive ventilation pattern here due to the fact that you have all this edema and pressure that's pushing on the lungs, which result in further atelectasis. You're going to have a mismatch, et cetera. Another thing that we're going to see is thrombocytopenia and anemia. Again, just for the fact that your kidneys are not going to be able to be making these type of molecules and enzymes that they're typically making when they're in this disease state. And lastly, like I said, we're going to talk about the kidney here. The hepatorenal syndrome is what we classify this as, and it's where you have renal failure caused by a chronic state of, again, this vasodilation, along with chronic activation of your RAS pathway, which is going to lead to vasoconstriction of those renal arteries while you systemically have this vasodilation. 
and it's going to decrease renal blood flow, which is then going to decrease GFR. And like I said, you're going to chronically have this aldosterone release, which is going to lower your potassium level, increase your volume systemically. So as you can see here, the main effect on a lot of these organs from cirrhosis is going to be with this hyperdynamic circulation, the idea that you're going to have all this vasodilation, but an increased cardiac output. The next thing we're going to talk about is hepatitis. This is mostly caused by viruses. We break down viral hepatitis into several groups. There's type A, B, C, and D. Those are usually what we see in the U.S. And there's also type E as well. Type A is going to be the most common form. You should know that A and E are both transmitted based on the oral fecal route, whereas B and C are most likely to be transmitted through the blood. Symptoms that you will usually see with hepatitis include jaundice, weakness, fever. Usually these things can last up to even three months. Um, you should also know that hepatitis can be caused by drugs. Alcohol is the number one culprit of drug-induced hepatitis. Uh, this causes buildup of fat in the liver, and then that ultimately causes the issues with hepatitis. The other thing that you should remember, and this is probably something you know already, but Tylenol, this is a big culprit of uh, causing hepatitis. The reason for this is because Tylenol will use up your body supply of what's called glutathione, which is basically used for phase two conjugation reactions. The long short of that means that glutathione conjugates the toxic metabolite of Tylenol into a non-toxic form, and then, then it's able to be excreted from the body. However, if a patient has too much Tylenol, then all of this is going to be used up and then the toxic metabolite is, is going to be an increased form there in the body and that can lead to hepatocellular injury. And so that is what ultimately the problem is with too much Tylenol is this toxic metabolite that is not being transitioned into this non-toxic form because the glutathione in the liver is already used up. You can treat this with N-acetylcysteine but keep in mind that too much of Tylenol is also going to be a major problem here. As far as labs go, you should know that an increase in AST and ALT can either mean hepatitis or cirrhosis. If the AST to ALT ratio is above two, then you're going to lean more towards cirrhosis compared to hepatitis. If the PT is increased, this is one of the most sensitive indicators of acute injury to the liver. This is simply because the liver will stop making coagulation factors. So if you remember from our hematology episodes, factor seven has the shortest half-life, which is why the body's level of factor seven will drop quickly uh, when the liver stops making it. As a result, the extrinsic pathway will be altered. So this is why your PT, remember PT measures your extrinsic pathway. This is why the PT will be a sensitive indicator. Another thing you could look at is 5-nucleotidase, and this is because it's brought out through the bile duct. And so it would be increased if there's a bile duct obstruction. So this is another lab that you may look at. The last thing we want to talk about is what are the anesthesia concerns for these kind of patients? And in patients with acute hepatitis, you got to keep in mind here, if it's a emergent surgery, we're going to obviously go ahead and do that. But if it's not emergent, the ideal thing is to let the patient become more stabilized from a medical standpoint prior to doing surgery. If you have a patient in a chronic liver state and they're currently stable, then we're more than happy to go ahead and start anesthesia here, but we're going to have some changes and some alterations that we're going to do. So something to keep in mind here is that our volatile gases are going to reduce the hepatic blood flow. 
This is more so with Desferane than ISO or SIBO. So if you are going to be using volatile anesthesia, then ISO or SIBO is going to be your number one, number two choices prior to using DES. If the patient uses alcohol, you got to think, how is this going to affect my MAC? So if the patient chronically uses alcohol, they're going to develop tolerance to that. And so their MAC is going to be increased, meaning they're going to need more of our anesthesia to get them down just because they're so tolerant to the effects of this alcohol. Whereas if they're acutely intoxicated by the alcohol, they're not going to need near as much anesthesia to get them under. So their MAC is going to be reduced. In these patients who really want to try to maintain the intravascular volume, again, if you have a cirrhosis patient, like I said, they're going to be in this hyperdynamic circulation state, which is where they're going to have a lot of fluid to begin with in their vasculature. And so we want to try to maintain that volume. If you get to the point where you're going to be giving a lot of crystalloids, I would recommend giving some albumin earlier and then later, simply because with these patients, they're probably already going to have a lower amount of albumin anyway. So it might be good to just go that route and try to beef up that volume by drawing in and increasing that narcotic pressure rather than simply just giving lots of crystalloids. Again, you want to avoid any type of long-acting medications that are going to be broken down by the liver long-acting opioids, long-acting neuromuscular blockers, such as vecuronium. So again, try to stay with more of the short-term than the long-term. And especially with the neuromuscular blockers, just be reevaluating, checking how the patient's doing prior to just giving another subsequent dose of it. Again, because this could build up quickly and stay in this patient for a long time, just for the fact that it's not going to be broken down and excreted from the body. Tanner already mentioned this earlier in the talk, but anytime that we have these patients, you want to be careful with any type of positive pressure ventilation or PEEP that we're going to be using, because this is going to decrease the amount of venous return that we have. And that's going to back up even more so through the liver back into the portal vein and the portal vasculature. And already, if they're going to be backed up in a cirrhosis patient, then again, you don't really want to augment this effect by pushing it back based on our PEEP or a positive pressure ventilation. If you're going to be doing a neuroactual anesthesia plan, for these patients, it's very, very important that you take a look at their coagulation levels and where they stand from that standpoint. Really, you should be doing this anytime we're going to be doing a neuroactual anesthesia. But again, with these patients, they're really at risk for having low number of coagulation products being made from the liver. So we need to be checking what their labs are prior to doing this type of anesthesia. And lastly, this is a no-brainer, but really be avoiding the uh, drugs that can, that can cause hepatotoxic um, effects on the liver. And this is going to be, again, as Tanner talked about, Tylenol, um, amiodarone, penicillins, et cetera. Just take a look at what drugs are going to be uh, at an increased risk of causing some toxicity to the liver. And you probably should not be giving those uh, if you have a patient with either an acute hepatic disease or a severe chronic disease. So this wraps up what we wanted to go through for the liver. Uh, hopefully this has helped um, your understanding of both the anatomy the blood flow as it goes through the liver, the ducts in terms of how the bile is drained, uh, how it backs flows into the gallbladder, and what are the types of procedures that we'll do to help anything that goes wrong with that, and what kind of drugs are going to be affecting these kind of patients and what we should alter in our anesthesia plan. 